says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Father, as we open up your word tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would speak something new to us. Lord, as our time is short here on this earth, none of us know the day or the hour that we'll leave. Lord, we pray that we'll be able to live our, our lives in a way that glorifies you, in a way that we're not wasting it, wasting our precious time. Lord, uh, I pray that you speak to hearts tonight. Convict where there needs convicting. Encourage where there needs encouraging. And may we be able to live a little bit differently when we leave here today. For your kingdom. As we go off into the summer and we'll have all these different choices in front of us. Lord, it's your Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us. And we want to acknowledge that tonight. So Lord, we look to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you that missed out on our evangelism uh, Philly edition hangout last Saturday, it was a great time. I actually have a good story about it. We were going down and we stopped at a rest stop. And so uh, there was a van next to us and I felt led by the Spirit. I, I think it was me that felt led by the Spirit to... Uh, Evangelize to the van next to us. What? Excuse me, I'm speaking right now. Okay, I'll tell the real story. I was, I was scared because there were guys in tattoos in a van next to us that had weird hair, like crazy. And so a bunch of students in the van exhorted me to evangelize, and I said no. I had my reasons. It was for personal safety. And then they're like, Alan, you're not even a good youth pastor and you're a terrible example and saying all this, you know, mean stuff. And I was like, you guys, you're so terrible. I was like, fine, give me a Mark Cahill book. So I take a Mark Cahill evangelism book and I walk up to one of the guys and turns out, I went up to them. They looked like they might have been in a band. So I was like, you guys in a band? They're like, oh yeah, we're in a band called Breathe Carolina. Anyone know who that is? Yeah. So they're a pretty popular band, and so wound up evangelizing to them. I went back in the van, I was like, yeah, see guys, I don't know why you doubted the whole time. So the end of the story is, if you go on these evangelism hangouts, you might meet a famous band. No, that's not the point. That's actually a bad reason to go evangelizing. But um, shh. I do exhort you, though, to, although we might not be doing it in a formal sense, you know, every single week going out on these trips, are you evangelizing in your community? Are you evangelizing with your neighbors or your friends that are outside the church? And I had one such opportunity the other day, and uh, I was talking to this guy who was agnostic, which means that he wasn't really sure what the answer was. If there was a God or there wasn't a God, he didn't really, he didn't really know. And... Uh, he was kind of apathetic about the whole thing. Maybe you know a Christian, not a Christian, an unbeliever like that, who just doesn't really care about the Bible or if there's truth or not. He's like, well, I don't really know. Maybe there's a heaven, maybe there isn't. I don't think anyone can really know and things like that. So 
we continue this discussion, and we're in church, so I was talking about church things and asking him, like, what he plans to do. He was saying he was going off to the army and stuff. And what I realized is, and I want you to remember this question, because this question seems to be very powerful. And I asked him this question. Is if death is only a natural process of life, then why is it so painful? I asked him if death is just a natural process of life, then why is it so painful? If it's just the natural workings of our world for things to die, for a, a plant to grow and then it withers away, then why should we feel pain about it? And it seems inescapable. When a family member or a friend dies, you hurt inside and a part of you feels like it's lost and you can't get it back. But if we're really just an accident, it should be normal for us and we shouldn't feel bad about it. You know, I think that's proven by the fact that um, in World War II, there were the Nazi Gestapo that would talk to these Jewish families and they would say to them, choose one of your children to be saved or you can let all of them die. So these parents had to come to this, this really tough decision to either choose one of their children to live or to let all of them die. And there just seems something wrong with just saying, yeah, just choose one and, and then everything's okay. And if you look at it at a purely naturalistic standpoint, you should say, well, you want one to live, don't you? But it seems wrong to, to value one life over another life. And those kinds of questions, I think, bring up the sense in you that death isn't the way that things were supposed to happen. The hurt tells us that it shouldn't be this way. This place is not our final destination. It's not our home. And we can't live like it's our final destination or our home. But at the same time, we'll distract ourselves with goals, with careers, with jobs, dreams. And we don't ask the fundamental question, why is it that I do anything that I do? Why is it that I take up my hobbies or that I pursue a goal or I do anything that I do? People are so distracted with the pursuit of happiness, the American dream, that we don't ask these questions. There is a... Uh, one historian named Hannah Arndt who said something about World War II which I think is very profound. She said, some of the worst villains of the Nazi regime were not necessarily evil as much as they were terrifyingly normal, simply following directions and doing right by the authorities which called them to her service. In other words, I think a lot of people just want to live for themselves and ask the questions later. They say things like, hey, we should just legalize drugs. You know, there's nothing wrong with legalizing drugs. And in fact, if we just legalize drugs, you wouldn't have these crimes. You wouldn't have these wars. And the American economy could be boosted. You can make a lot of money. You know what people don't, how many of you have heard that before? If we just legalize drugs, we'll have a lot of problems solved, especially in the economy. What people don't realize is, does anyone know what the second uh, largest criminal enterprise is? Anyone? What's that? No. Number one is drugs, the largest uh, criminal enterprise. The second largest is child and human trafficking. Yes, the global market of child trafficking is at over $12 billion a year with 1.2 million child victims. That's by UNICEF, that statistic. So why don't we just legalize that too? Right? The logic doesn't work that way. But people just want to live for themselves and ask the questions later. 
But think about how many people's lives are ruined at the expense of others living business as usual. Just carry on and do what you've been doing, do what you've been told to do, because it's okay as long as everyone's doing it, it must be all right. Think about pornography, how women are being treated like objects, like they're mindless, like trophies. And it's okay to personify them that way because everyone else is doing it. And the amount of men that are in bondage to that thing and they feel like they can't ever escape. I want to ask you a question. Are you wasting your life? Are you doing what everyone else is doing? Are you just living your life in a way that kind of fits in with society? And and because it fits in with society, you think there must not be anything wrong with what I'm doing. Are we wasting the precious time given to us? I think it's easy to say that we don't need God when we think we have everything, especially as Americans. It's easy to say, I I don't really need God when you're witnessing to other people and they might say that to you because they feel like there's nothing that they don't have. But what they don't have is security. With all of our technological advancement, how can you avoid what we don't know will happen? How can you avoid the Oklahoma tornadoes? Even though the weather might predict a certain thing, they only have 15 minutes in order to escape the tornadoes. And as you know, many, many people died. What about this week? I think this week was a prime week for this message because there's all these crazy things happening on the news. In Washington yesterday on I-9, uh, I-5, one of their bridges, it just collapsed. No one died, thankfully, but the bridge just went and gave way. And it's a miracle that no one died. Many of you probably saw in London there was that hacking victim where these Islamic terrorists just rammed their car into uh, a British soldier and just hacked his head off with a meat cleaver in broad daylight with women and children around. It's pretty amazing because there's actually people that are walking around didn't even realize that this guy's head was cut off. And you see it in the camera where the guys, the terrorist is talking to the camera and they, you know, blur things out. But people walk right by the dead body not even realizing what was happening. Now, how many of us do that spiritually? We'll live our lives in a way because we don't want to be responsible with the death that's going on around us. Also, the other day, we had an engine fire in Heathrow Airport where the plane had to come around and land because one of its engines caught fire. No one died in that either. But what I am saying is no one knows the day when you leave this earth. And how many of us are playing with death when we're texting while driving? You know, I'm not saying that to accuse anyone because we're all guilty of it, right? But what I am saying is you don't know the day that you could go. It could be something as simple as being distracted while driving that could put you on the other side of eternity. In all of our technological advancement, what kind of medicine could you invent to prevent our souls from departing our bodies? It doesn't matter how advanced we become as a society, you can't prevent death from coming. No matter how advanced we become as a nation, there'll be nothing that keeps death from coming at our doors. So our lives are short. The the question is, can we afford to waste them? And for us Christians, this is where the good news comes in. John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? To die in our place. That we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be worried about what's on the other side. We can have the guarantee that we are going to be with our Lord and Savior. 
Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, we wept when we, we wept when we were born, though all around us smiled. So shall we smile when we die while all around us weep. As Christians, you can have this hope that death isn't the final say in everything about life. But there's something that continues on. It's only a passageway into eternity. So a Christian is one who doesn't want to waste their lives on things that will rot away. Instead, wants to put his life in the hands of a Savior that can guide it. The never-changing, the Alpha and the Omega, the Savior, the one who can come and give us everything that we've been looking for, as well as life and eternity in heaven. But I think a lot of us live with this nearsightedness and farsightedness, and this this is what I mean by that. Some people can have vision askew, where one eye is nearsighted and one eye is farsighted, and you need glasses in order to correct that kind of vision. And in the same way, it's possible to have one eye on the kingdom of man and one eye on the kingdom of God and not be able to see either. Many of us have that same kind of vision when it comes to spiritual things, where you'll have one eye on the kingdom of man one eye on the kingdom of God and not be able to see clearly of either. So since we don't know how much time we have, we have to direct our lives towards God. And this is what James is going to be talking about in these next couple verses. He's going to tell us to do three things. And direct, directing is with all those things. Number one, direct your plans. Number two, direct your riches. And number three, to direct your focus. But number one is direct your plans. And we'll read it again. He says in verse 13, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Which sounds weird, right? Is there something wrong with making plans? What do you think? Is something wrong with making plans? I don't think so. If you didn't make plans, you'd be in a lot of trouble. What if we had our summer retreat without any plans? Everyone just comes to church. All right. Summer retreat. Here we go. Like, So what are we doing? Oh, there's no plans. Just going to hang out for three days at the church. No plans? No, no plans. What about your wedding? Everyone shows up, all right. No plans, just going to wing it. That's what Pinterest is for, guys. God created some things like Pinterest so that you can plan your weddings. That's what I hear. So the problem doesn't seem to be having plans, obviously, or necessarily. But are you directing your plans properly? Because everyone has plans. The question is, are you directing them in the right direction? Here are two indicators that you are misdirecting your plans. Two indicators. Number one, we won't involve God in the planning. Number one is we won't involve God in the planning. As Christians, I think we can completely leave God out of our plans by doing things for him and not with him. You see the difference? There's a big difference in doing things for God and doing things with God. There's a big difference in you saying, God, I'm going to go to a college, maybe a Bible college, spend a year there, 
buy and sell, make a lot of profit, and come back and do these things in your name. You see, when you do things for God, it's a little bit different. It's like planning a wedding for your spouse rather than with your spouse. Maybe this isn't so bad for women because they probably do it anyway. But if you're a guy and you plan the whole wedding for your spouse, you might be a little mad because that's what women do. I mean, you, got, you girls probably plan this when you're like three. You already know what like, wedding dress you're going to wear and that's what I hear anyway. So the whole point of it is to plan it with your spouse, not necessarily for your spouse, except if you're a guy that's just like, I don't really care, just whatever. just want to get married. Now, you might even have that person in mind, but it's not the same thing as doing it with that person. And in the same way, we're married to God. We enter in this marriage relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. In the same way, you have to be making plans with God, looking to him for his counsel, and not just say, I am going to do things for your name and expect it to work right. And number two, another indicator that you're uh, misdirecting your plans is that we're forgetting that our plans aren't perfect. Forgetting that our plans aren't perfect. And I think this is seen in some plans are better than others. You might have a plan to just be spontaneous. You might be spontaneously making a trip to North Dakota. And you're like, man, I just I don't want to have any plans. I just want to go out to North Dakota and see what's out there. Which is obviously nothing. But you go out there and it sounds awesome. You know, North Dakota wanted, they were like struggling for tourism so bad that they wanted to rename themselves to Electric Dakota. Not kidding. You know that state's in trouble when they have to rename themselves just to attract tourism. But let's say you make your spontaneous plans to North Dakota, which could be really fun, and you miss out on something really awesome like uh, an anime convention. Yeah. All right, there's like three people here that are excited about what I just said, which is very troubling. All right, I don't know what you like to do, but there's obviously some things that are better than planning other things. And everyone knows that terrible feeling when you've missed out on something, right? When all of your friends go to New York City and they come back and they're like, we met One Direction, oh my gosh, you totally missed out. And you're like, no, you're like so sad. You go home and you like tumbler about it. I don't know. So, shh. In the same way, because our plans aren't perfect, we mustn't forget that only God knows what will happen tomorrow. Only God has the perfect eyesight to see into the future and know what the perfect plans of life should be. And because we get so used to the routines of life, we expect tomorrow to just happen just the way that it always has. But what is our life? It's a vapor. That's what James says. It is but a vapor, literally a mist. Like your breath that comes out on a cold winter night. It just appears for a second and then it's gone. In the same way you look at your life and you look in the mirror one day and you're like, man, I got gray hairs. It's really weird. That's me, but uh, I guess you guys don't have gray hairs yet because you're in high school. But one day, if you're not paying attention, you look in the mirror and then you got some gray hairs. You're like, wow, what happened to me? When did I get so old? We might even have some good plans too. You might have a plan to get married. You might have a plan for, uh, you know, ministry. Maybe it could even be a good plan for impact this summer. You, you say, I want to serve the Lord in what I do. But we must not forget the ultimate planning of God. That's what I'm saying. You may have your plans, and they might even be good plans, 
to serve the Lord, but you can't forget God in your planning. Remember, the plans of God are ultimate. Isaiah 55 verse 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, when God says something, it has to be done. And he was so bold in this that he actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah about this king named Cyrus. And he called him by name. He, he called him Cyrus even before he was born so that Cyrus would accomplish his will and bring Israel out of captivity. It says in Isaiah 45, 4 through 5, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. You see, the cool thing about Cyrus is, and historic tradition goes, that King Cyrus saw this and was so inspired in the book of Isaiah that God wrote about him that he was even more uh, uh, motivated to go and free Israel from the hands of the Babylonians, I think it was, whoever it was, Dave knows. So the cool thing is that God has these plans for you, for you to walk in, Ephesians 4 tells us. He has these good works that he wants us to accomplish. The question is, are we going to be faithful to look to him for the planning of our lives? Are we going to do our own thing? Because our plans can fail, but the plans of the Lord never fail. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And that means that there's not even any randomness that really exists in the, in the world, if you think about it. There's no, no such thing as chance, no such thing as just a coincidence because God ordains all things sovereignly. So you might flip a coin and expect it to fall in your hands on, the, on account of chance, but it's really not chance. It's just you have, if you had an equation to measure the velocity at which you flip that coin or whatever, it's not chance. You can predict how it's going to land. And in the same way, nothing's really by chance when you have God in the equation because he knows how it's going to work out in the end. It goes on in Proverbs 16 to talk about how the lot is cast into the lap, like the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God is not ever surprised by events that happen in the world. He doesn't look in the world and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Wow, that's so surprising. But God looks at it and he enjoys what he sees when his creation walks in the plans that he has for them. So are we inviting the Holy Spirit to guide our lives? Because it's impossible... It is very possible to go through life missing out on God's best for you. It's possible to go through your life as a Christian, quote unquote, and say, yeah, I'm going to live for God and miss out on what God has planned for your life. And the scary thing is that we can get used to it. We can get so used to going through a day-to-day -day mundane existence, very little spirit-filled, that we forget about the Holy Spirit altogether that we forget about God in the equation of our lives and we still call ourselves Christians. J.I. Packer had an illustration that I think was very interesting on this. He said, something approaching a third of the world's population, two billion plus, are undernourished and go chronically hungry since where they live, food is regularly in short supply. So do these hungry people always feel hungry? Actually, No. Not only does absorption in other things keep hunger at bay for hours, but it is unhappily possible to get used to never having enough so that the body settles for always being below par. 
Then energy evaporates, appetites wither, and lethargy sets in. So you can see, like, in, even in the world with normal food, physical food, you can get used to starving yourself so that you're distracted by other things of life. But that doesn't mean that the effects don't take a toll on your body. In the same way, you can be spiritually deprived of spiritual food from the bread of heaven, from the Bible, and have these effects happen on your spiritual self and you not even realize it. So are you really living? Or are you just copying what all your friends do? Just because other Christians live a certain way, you're just like, yeah, it must be okay to live this way. It must be okay to be this depressed all the time. It must be okay to live this kind of mundane existence where nothing really happens. God never really speaks to you and your prayers never really get answered. And if that's a Christian life that you find yourself experiencing, I have to say, I don't think you're really, li really living in the Spirit. Because the Spirit tells us in the Bible that His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than His thoughts. As high as heaven is from the earth. That's how high his ways are from our ways. And if, our way, if, if the ways that we're living in are depressing and boring, then we might not be living a spirit-filled spirit life. I need water. It's that time of the year again. Look at verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So this is a traditional saying that was going on in their times. Basically saying, therefore, since you've been told what to do and what to do is good, to ignore what he just said is sin. To live your life in a way that's deviating from God's perfect plan is itself an imperfection. And you might be living in a way that's sinful just by not doing what God commands you to do. The sin of omission is equal to the sin of commission. The sin of not doing is equal to the sin of doing. So are we, you might be saying, well, I'm not really doing anything bad, but are you doing anything good? Are you doing anything that the Lord is calling you to do? So look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He makes a transition here. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion, corrosion, rather, that's not even a word, corrosion. Corrosion will be a witness against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of, of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. James now specifically addresses those who do not believe in God. And here the rich man is rebuked for using all of his resources on himself. His riches, his money... That is, his clothes, his land, his relationships, all the things he has, he's using on himself. Now, it's not saying that it's wrong to be rich. Not necessarily wrong, but it's more about a misuse of riches. Like the Bible says in Luke 12, For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. 
So when you love yourself above anything else, all of your resources will be directed towards that end. Maybe you've noticed that to be true. When you want everyone to be worshiping you, you'll use anything you have to worship yourself as well. And this is what the world tells you to do, to love yourself, to pursue your own happiness, and to pursue your own life. And what it ends up doing is it takes advantage of others and takes advantage of the things that God has given you. You realize that all the things that you have have been given to you by God. Even the people that don't believe in God. They're given their lives. So when they live their lives in rebellion towards him, they owe him life. They are given riches. And if they, live their, if they use their riches to live a life that's not according to God's will, then they owe him riches. They owe him all the things that they've stolen from God. It's kind of like a father that is really rich and gives his son $2 million. And that son takes all that money and wastes it on himself. Completely just blows that money on himself. That's obviously money that is now owed to the father that gave it to him. So in the same way, we have a responsibility to use our resources for the kingdom of God. And when we don't, it's not enough to just say, hey, well, I tried to do my best, but I didn't like do anything wrong with what you've given me. That's the parable of the talents. You have the, the rich ruler who gave to uh, each of his servants some talents, some bit of money. And they all invested it. Some of them invested in stocks and some multiplied it. And one said, hey, I buried it in the ground. Here's your money back. I'm giving it back to you. It's not enough to just give the money back. What are you doing with what God has given you? Luke chapter 16 says, Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. The point that you have worldly resources and you have all the things that God has given you is to use it for his glory. Not for you to use it on yourself. So are you using it? Are you using it on yourself? I think if you followed me around, you would get a pretty good idea of what matters most to me. If you hung out with me enough, you probably know that I like rock climbing. I like reading the Bible, talking about philosophy, those kinds of things. But what matters most to you? What's the thing that you count on the most? That's the most dear to your heart? Maybe you didn't know this before. But the more time that you invest in something, the more attached your heart will be to that thing. Maybe you know this to be true through video games. I play this one only one video game that really caught my attention in all of my life while I was in high school is called Fantasy Star Online. And it was an RPG, and I played countless hours on this game. I've told a lot of you this before, but countless hours on this game, and one day the account just got wiped. And I felt like, like you know, I had this flashback of all the hours that I was just sitting, dedicating to this video game. It was all just like gone. And in the same way, some, some of us are living our lives in that kind of way. Where it can just all be gone in an instant and it wouldn't count for anything. But the more time that you spend doing something, the more that your heart is going to follow after that thing. You know, I started off rock climbing just saying, yeah, I'm just going to do it once a month maybe to stay in shape, but that's it. And I was afraid of heights, so I really didn't want to go rock climbing that often. But all my friends kind of like peer pressured me into doing it. And before you know it, I was like climbing once a week and then like twice a week. And I've been consistent at twice a week. But now I'm like climbing all the time and trying to get sponsors and stuff like that. Before you know it, you're always going to ask the question. The more time you spend doing something, you're going to ask the question, 
What part of the equation of my life does this play in? What does this mean to me? And that's why, especially you ladies, have to be very careful about who you spend time with. Because you could say, hey, we're just friends, but the more time you spend with that person, the more invested you'll be in that person as well. And maybe it'll end up just being a friendship, but more likely you're gonna, your affections are going to follow after that person that you've been spending all of your time calling on the phone, all of your time hanging out with, and you know it's true. Same thing with you guys too. You got to be careful. You got to be guarding your heart. What's interesting to note is that society is trying to do the opposite. There's a recent study that came out where they're talking about the hookup culture. How no one wants relationships anymore. Everyone in college just wants to hook up with each other and just pretend like nothing ever happened. But the problem is that doesn't work that way. Especially when you have sex with someone else. There's actually a hormone called oxytocin that is released. That's a bonding hormone. So when you have sex with someone, it makes you want to bond with the other person. That's why you have all these feelings of regret after you lose your virginity with someone. Because you've bonded with that person. And it's actually uh, to protect you, especially as a woman. This hormone is released so that it protects you from uh, uh, giving up that kind of trust. Enables you to trust that person that you're uh, marrying, hopefully, or spend your time with so that you can bond and increase that kind of thing. But everyone's trying to do this. And the recent study was saying how people are experiencing more than ever feelings of regret and just confusion about life and about love because they're trying to get all of the, the hookups without any of the relationships. I think Jesus said it best when he said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It's a timeless truth that still stands so in order to be able to surrender your resources, maybe you've been investing your time in the wrong things and the wrong people, in order to surrender that, you first have to surrender your heart to God. And if you're not a believer in God, if you're not a Christian, it's going to be very hard for you to give up your resources and say, I'm not going to hold on to these things too, too tightly. It would be very hard for you to do that because you don't have any alternative. But when you have the ultimate alternative, when you have God who's able to fulfill every single need that you would have, it's very easy to give up all those things once you recognize their timefulness, their temporality. So look at verse 7 of chapter 5. What does the Christians do? It says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So when things go wrong in this world, this is the third direction, is to direct your focus. I forgot to call out the other one while we were going through it. It was to uh, direct your plans, direct your resources, and also direct your focus. This last one in the last couple of verses but when things go wrong in this world, we have to remember that this world isn't our home. When you have anxieties and when you have all these different worries and stresses and you're just 
feel like you can't go on, you have to remember that this world is not our home. It's not our final destination. And it's only when we're able to have that kind of focus that we're able to really make the full use of our lives here on the earth. It's only when you set your mind on things above that you're able to give up those things of the earth. You have to focus on the Lord. But how do you do that? How do you direct your focus? I would suggest to you it's by investing your time in the person of God. Like we just said, the more time that you invest in something, the more your heart will follow, the more your affections will follow. The more time that you invest in the person of God, the more your affections and your heart will follow in the person of God. But how many of us forget about that? I think so many problems could be resolved if we just read our Bibles and prayed. And so many of us make it really complex. Like I really need to get over this addiction. I really can't stop looking at pornography or this drug or whatever it is. And we just keep saying, what, what kind of like technique do I have to do? Do I have to get accountability partners around me? And do I have to like break my computer? Do I have to do all these things? And it'd be solved if you just spent time with the person of Jesus. It's so simple, but we forget it. I'm not saying those things aren't good. It's good to have accountability partners and all those things. But they have to be secondary to the primary relationship between you and God. The vertical relationship has to happen before the horizontal. Now he says what happens is when you don't have that focus, you'll start, like in verse 9, you'll start grumbling against one another. And if you look back at verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law and you're not a doer of the law but a judge, there's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? It's really easy to judge other people when you're not focused on Jesus. When you think, oh, I have to, I have to be the one to, that rebukes that person. I got to tell that person. Or, you know what, I hate that person. I can't stand that person. It's really easy to do that when you're not focused on your Savior. When you set your eyes on Jesus, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I am a sinner, number one. And number two, God's going to take care of that person that made injustice against me. All you have to do is set your eyes on Jesus. And you're able to stop grumbling and stop complaining. You know, do all things without complaining. How do you do that? Set your eyes on Jesus. Focus on God who gives all things to you. And recognize, all right, I'm complaining about this situation. But maybe God wants to show me something through this situation. Maybe I shouldn't complain about it because God has given it to me to show me something about myself. In conclusion, I want to point out that time is running out. And are we wasting our time on things that have no eternal value? Are we wasting our time on things that will perish, that will waste away? I don't know about you guys, but I want to see the riches of his kingdom. I want to know what God is up to. I want to know what he's cooking, what he's building. And I want to devote my life in a way that pleases him and focuses my, my eyes on him and devotes my life in a way that's going to please him. It's hard to do that. But I know I've seen in the past, personally, I've been able to see that when God directs your life, things that work out much better than what you got planned. How did I know that? Well, I mean, I, a lot of you know my testimony, how I wanted to do certain things. I wanted to be, you know, a musician and all that. And I thought that was going to make me happy. I thought that was like what I really wanted. And in the end, I realized that it really wasn't going to make me happy. And some of you say, how do you know that? You, you weren't really famous or, or things like that. Well, obviously I wasn't. But I can see that by what I'm doing now. I mean, I love you guys. And I love having fun. I love being around you guys and just 
teaching and being involved in youth ministry and seeing the work that God is doing in you. Like some of you, I've literally known you since you were in sixth grade. And now you're like in high school. Some of you are graduating. That's crazy. And I've been able to see your progress. And a lot of you have friends that no longer walk with the Lord. And I've been able to see that too. And that's depressing. But being able to experience this with you, to walk life with you, is something I would never trade for anything. I wouldn't trade fame for that. I wouldn't trade, I don't know, you, you could give me all the world, but I want Jesus. So I don't know if that's your heart. I don't know if that's what you want. But I understand that, like in Psalm 31, verse 15, it says that my times are in your hand, God. I don't know when I'm going to die. I could die tomorrow. I could die today. I don't know. You don't know either. We could leave this place and we could all die. Hopefully not. It makes more sense to entrust our lives to the one who knows when we're going to die. Rather than trying to arrogantly plan our lives and say, I'm going to do this and then go here and spend my time there and I'm going to be famous and I got this plan. You know, I actually had this friend on Facebook that posted a status like that. Like, be your own person. Do what you want to do. Inspire other people. Achieve your dreams. You can do it. You have the power within you. And then I commented underneath it. Yeah, unless you die. <laughs> it's true. Like you can have all your plans, but what if you die? Then your plans obviously won't be fulfilled. Job 14.5 talks about how God holds all of our limits in his hands. He knows the day that you're going to die. You're not going to die a day shorter than what he has planned for you. So who's going to have the heaven-gazed eyes? Who's going to be looking towards heaven and say, I know that anything God has for me is much better than anything I can think of myself. And it's so easy to give in to temptations when you forget that, when you're focusing your eyes on what is present. That's why James is speaking against the arrogant person. This whole time, the rich man who's arrogant in his riches. The person who's arrogant in his plans to say, we'll do this instead of if the Lord wills, we'll do this or we'll do that. Or we're to be patient, waiting upon God and what he's building and his plans, knowing that he could do something pretty amazing if we just look to him. I think the easiest way to remember this is uh, this way. The man who is least surprised at the day he dies directs his eyes to he who holds our times. <laughs> I just made a joeyism. I'll say it again. The man who is least surprised at the day he dies directs his eyes to he who holds our times. In other words, the person who is most prepared for their day of death is the one who surrenders that day to the one that planned that day in the first place, which is God. Only he knows the future. And you're not going to die a day sooner than the day he has planned for you. 